And we're at a moment where sort of all all contradictions are heightened, right? Byproduct of the crisis of contemporary capitalism. This week in class politics. Classic fucking boomer. Old new left. Maintaining the relations of neoliberalism. No! Capital. No! Capital. No! Capital. No! 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 Ideas are international, but we're from cameras. You're listening to Dole Capital, a show that discusses developments in class struggle and left politics from the mean streets of Red Hill in the ACT to Santiago <laughs> and beyond. Yeah, it's uh, pretty mean out there in Red Hill, man. Yeah, we've uh, got a big representation out there, don't we? We do. <laughs> in Red Hill. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, we're back this month to inflated blame, the inflation death spiral. And, uh, dun, dun, dun. And, uh, and the first sitting of a new federal parliament. My name's Ben, and on this show you'll be hearing my partner in crime, Jacob, and I, hello there, Jacob, G'day, mate. catch up on what's been an interesting couple of weeks in Australian class struggle. Well, before we get started, though, this show wouldn't be possible without our patrons and supporters. A big shout out to our comrades for their financial solidarity. We're saving for some improved sound recording equipment, so why not sign up and help us be more footloose and agile <laughs> with our sounds? You can donate at www.patreon.com forward slash D-O-H-K-A-P-I-T-A-L. That's patreon.com forward slash doll capital. Also, please like, share and subscribe to our show and leave a review on your preferred podcast application. We're recording, uh, as always, on Ngunnawal Country. Um, we pay our respects to Ngunnawal elders past, present and emerging. Um and we acknowledge that their sovereignty was never ceded, and we'd like to also express our solidarity with uh, ongoing struggles to end injustices for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people all over Australia. Just, just quickly, Jake, would also mm-hmm. uh, like to acknowledge the passing of the uh, the man um, Archie Roach, who passed away um, mm. in the last day, twenty four hours or so, on the at the time of recording. Uh, very sad news. Um, too young at sixty six, uh, but made a fantastic contribution for his people and our society in Australia. Um, yeah, yeah, Jacob. Like you, Roche. So yeah. uh, we are going to talk on this episode about inflation. The The inflation discourse is um, heating up, pun intended. And uh, uh, before we get to that, um, you were just chatting to me off mic about uh, a little piece in the um, the Saturday paper, a um, little opinion piece that really got your gears grinding. So what, what was that about? Yeah, look, people can look it up. The Saturday paper does provide some fun long reads, but it does at times suffer, in my humble opinion, from uh, a bit of a, well, very bent uh, liberal or maybe even left liberal sort of view of politics. And that's fine. That's cool. I'm glad it's out there. But basically the summary is uh, the problems in Labor, particularly Labor in Victoria, which has basically been under administration for over a year and looks like it's going to have administration for another year, is to um, to fix that we just ban political factions is the, <laughs> the summary mm. thing. So that got me a little upset, as as did other democratic socialists who are in, who are in Labor, because there's a lot more to it than that. And um, big shout out there to Red Rabbler Oz for basically pointing out that what we need is well more more democracy and more uh, transparency in life. And we're really well and truly part of um, backing those those views about what the problems are in in labor as an organization i guess what it comes down to jake is that frustration that we'll talk more about what's going on in the parliament is that people don't quite understand that what happens in state branches is really important for what we end up have having as our federal parliament uh it's our state branches that determine who will be elected to become the candidates to to then be elected to be 
our federal representatives for the parliamentary party, for the federal parliament. And what you get is uh, you're going to get a compromise. You're going to get a photocopy of a photocopy. So when you have state branches like Victoria, which is now looking to go in the administration for two years now with members not being able to vote, uh, and we've had all these very well-documented problems in New South Wales, is it's, it's not good. We know it's not good, but the solutions to that is not a smaller liberal argument like, oh, it's factions that have caused this. Now, of course, factions in and of themselves are not bad things. The idea of a faction is that it's when a group of individuals get together around a topic, around an issue, or a group of issues, or a view of the world, and they work with other people that they're working with to try and to convince others of their point of view. Now, unsurprisingly, any serious political organization acknowledges that that's how politics works. You'll have some people who are drawn to an argument or come up with something, and then you need to go and convince others of it. So factions aren't necessarily evil. Where where they're bad is when you have organizations that aren't democratic, and that's what we've seen happen in in, uh, Victoria, where uh, groups have used uh, positions that they've got to either act corruptly, as has been proven by this recent report in Victoria, or um, or even criminally in, in some cases, um, for their own ends. And we've seen this also happen in, in New South Wales in a not too distant past, unfortunately. But um, I guess that's my two cents there. That's the yeah. yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think that the argument that uh, the problem is the existence of the, the factions comes from this kind of liberal, um, anarchic kind of predisposition that just says like if you if you see a structure um and something bad comes out of it then it must be like a structure that requires dismantling and we've talked about it before i think um maybe more in relation to the sort of broader liberal anti-politics that we've seen from people like david pocock who doesn't talk about um labor factions but does talk about um party political um campaigning and and um conduct in in parliament and things like that um which is like a it's just sort of a fundamental misunderstanding of the purpose and the history and the utility of of factions like the reality is um within our party apparatuses and this is the case for every political party um we have democratic processes that are used to sort through questions where there are disagreements you know and work out a a party line that can then be uh pushed for that is in generally in general or on on a sort of centralist basis is you know um workable for everyone in the party um and the thing is that these issues play out on different timelines you know and there are some that are pretty sticky you know and they're sort of like perennial um differences and that's when you get factions factions are created over the differences of in terms of you know strategy and belief that are the ones that um, can't be immediately resolved and then therefore they kind of get um, resolved through uh, agreement to disagree right and then so we say okay our bigger picture um, kind of what what um, Mick Lynch was saying in, the, in his interview in Jacobin this week he was t- referring to um, I think he says yeah permanent values I think of something like that uh, was the idea that he talked about those those we agree on um, but um, then there are sort of like there's a level of issues just below that, um, which are pretty high level and pretty like perennial, pretty important, where we don't necessarily agree, but we don't have to because we can we can split into factions and we can come to, you know, a, a workable political um, compromise through that system. Um, so one wonders what people who propose the abolition of factions like. What do they imagine? Uh, political parties doing when they have these kinds of disagreements? Like, would they prefer that? 
you know, no political institution ever survive a, a major disagreement? Should they mm. just should should you know should should there just be like a p- sort of permanent um, state of um, mitosis between with political parties where they just divide and divide um, until they you know we have thousands and thousands of tiny groupuscules like um, you know Maoist groups or whatever um, which all have very minor disagreements over like lines of strategy or um, like readings of political texts or whatever. Um, to me, that's not a good um, way to advance like those permanent values that like the big picture things that um, we can all agree on. Um, Mm. And the thing is like, it's not um, trivial enough to say, you know, those, those things aren't trivial. So they have to be dealt with that. There's an imperative that, you know, um, we address inequality, for example, that we uh, um, build the power of unions and union members and, in general, across the you know, for the Labor Party, for example, um, those goals are pretty much universally held. Uh, but we have disagreements about you know um, where that where where that power should lie, who should who should hold it, and etc. Um, but um, to blow the party up because we have disagreements about those things would then be to the detriment of the whole goal. I would say so. Um, that I'm sure they're not thinking about it on that level. Maybe that's like too much detail that. You know, even for people who, yeah, for your um, typical kind of anarcho-liberal who says, like, I see a structure, it must be dismantled. Yeah. But, um, like, it is a very obvious, these are obvious pragmatic reasons to have factions. And, um, like, it's it's good. It, it cleans things up. It, you know, it helps. Uh, and, like, the thing is that, like, even within each faction, there are factions within factions. Like, they're a natural phenomenon of political organizing. It's not like this unique, um, it's not like an idea that somebody had one day. That was like we're going to make a party and it's going to have factions like the factions arise organically out of the history of the party you know what i mean um yeah. so that's a fundamental sort of category error that's being made here um as though they could just be not just these factions as they're co- currently constituted right but the whole idea of of like factionalism of breaking up into groups based on our agreements and disagreements that that could somehow be abolished from the minds of political actors it's absurd well it's it's beyond being naive really it's just it's willfully ignorant is my, I mean, I don't have any hair anymore, but I mean, that's one of the reasons I tear my hair out. And look, this this is our part of our regular. I can tear some of mine out for what, you. What is annoying us? Ed, 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 educational for our um, our dear friends who aren't aren't labour activists, and that's that's great. Like uh, we, we often we love talking about this one, and we'll let you know more about these things and talk more about them. But I guess the last point I wanted to to make on uh, factions and, and labour is, uh, like I'm. Same before, and and Jake was reiterating the if you have a an active, healthy um, organisation that's that's open, that it's easy for people to join, it's easy for them to participate, it's transparent in terms of um, who is joined in their in their rights, what rights they have to participate, uh, and it's transparency in its decision making, and that the members actually have uh, you know a genuine say over who elects their representatives. These. Those sort of things in terms of a party structure make action factions a lot less relevant, and they only become more relevant at, at sometimes at times around you know trying to get a bit of you know a piece of policy or a rule up or or particular candidates. Um, you can gauge the the health of an organisation by uh, how how many members there are and and how often members are um, allowed to participate and vote for their representatives. I think that's the, mm. the key there. So. Um, that's the way to battle factionalism. Yeah. That's the way. Yeah, that's exactly you know, right. We, we've managed to, to keep 
the anti-democratic forces in check in, in our state branch, in the ACT, is by um, the fact that we actually have a very quite, you know, one of the most open democratic yep. um, party rules in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the country. And something that we, we hope that our comrades uh, in either state can go and adopt. So, yeah, just to, to formulate it another way, like the, um, the less you have member engagement and member involvement, member democracy, uh, the more you incentivize factional skullduggery for, for vying for control. Yep. Um, because at, at the core of every faction, no matter how much member engagement you have, is always going to be a small group of professionals. Um, and when you have lots of member engagement, that's a really good thing. It's good to have people whose like lives are dedicated to facilitating political engagement with the party um, and running its events and um, making sure it stays engaged with the, the industrial arm of the movement, all of that stuff those are really good things but the problem is that as member engagement recedes um those uh people become the main characters if you like of that um of that institution either within the faction or within the party itself um and you know lots of them are the great people lots of them are our friends um but it's not to say that like you know <laughs> they shouldn't be um political actors in some way right they're, they're members of the party just in the same way that we are the problem comes about when they're um, participation is is like more valued than your average member. That's when you mm. get kind of um, starts to be counterproductive. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay. So moving on, let's talk about inflation. Uh, the as I said, the the discourse is heating up. Um, let me see here. We've got some some quotes. Um, this is um, these are I think all quotes from Australian commentators and um, luminaries, but it's certainly also the case in the UK and the US that um, recent strike waves um, have been um, bringing out this this kind of comment over and over again that to, to sort of strike for higher wages is irresponsible, um, that the in, an increase in wages across the board is going to lead to the um, the dreaded um, wage price death spiral. So um, that's the way that Innes Willocks, the CEO of um, Australian Industry Group, put it. He said, we're at, ri- at risk of a wages and inflation and in- interest rates death spiral. Death had, spiral. Um, death spiral. <laughs> yeah. We had Andrew McKellar, uh, CEO of the um, Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, saying aggressive wages growth will only spur further in- uh, inflation growth. Uh, we had uh, Innes Wilcox again um, saying, in the current circumstances, there is a clear risk that a high increase in wages without improved workplace productivity would fuel inflation and increase the likelihood of a steeper rise in interest rates to the detriment of growth and job creation. So there's a bit um, more sort of in-depth sort of commentary um, from Innes Wilcox there. So um, just to sort of lay that out a little bit, um, he mentions productivity. We've talked about it on the show before. Uh, the fact that uh, productivity has been workplace productivity has been going up in Australia for like twenty or thirty years pretty consistently, and wages haven't. So um, it seems to be that this uh, relationship between between the two as this core, you know, unbreakable, um, essential kind of relationship is only asserted when it's wages that are going up, and not when it's productivity that that's going up. Isn't that interesting? Um, the second thing that Innes Willock says here is that. Um, uh, he mentions interest rates. Okay, so um, I suppose to set this whole conversation up, it's it's worth talking about the fact that uh, the way that um, you know Western um, and modelled on Western um, capitalist countries have sort of set themselves up um, to manage their um, fiscal systems uh, is we have 
central banks. And the job of the central bank is to manage inflation. And the central bank is given a single big button to push to manage inflation, and that's the interest rates. So the interest rates determine uh, how much uh, it costs to borrow money. The more it costs to borrow money, um, the uh, more you have to pay back, uh, basically, once you've got a loan. Um, and so it impl- in the, the central bank... Uh, imposes these costs for borrowing money onto the commercial banks, which are the institutions that, uh, in particular, uh, most in, maybe most importantly in the Australian context, they lend money to buy houses. Okay, so um, Australia's whole economy is kind of built on a, a house of cards um, that is made up of um, uh, grossly inflated property prices. So um, it's relevant to mention this just because um, as the inflation rate is... Um, Sorry, the, as the interest rates are increased in order to manage inflation, um, the reason that that mechanism has an effect on inflation is that it takes um, uh, disposable money out of the uh, bank accounts of people who have home loans, in particular. And then they, can, if they, um, you know, are landlords, they can in turn pass that uh, on to their their tenants. Um, and so there's an overall effect of um, taking what economists call heat out of the economy, um, which is to say it, it, le- it decreases aggregate consumer demand by um, putting yeah, more money, uh, directing more money to re- repaying loans than it is being directed before to um, you know, consumer goods. Okay, so that's, that's why the inflation um, rate uh, has a relationship to interest rates. I hope I haven't explained that too clumsily, but that's the basic the basic understanding that I have, um, not being an economist um, or anything like that. Uh, so, well, I guess just to add to that, like uh, I know using from the Australian Institute, they quoted the International Monetary Fund saying mm. that the inflation is the rate of increase in prices over a given period of time. Inflation is typically a broad measure, such as an overall increase in the prices or the increase in the cost of living in a country. Mm. So, in the Australian context, our CPI, you know, uh, consumer price index, is, is what basically how they, they talk about inflation. One of the things that's interesting about that is they exclude certain measures in the economy from calculating that rate, including um, increased uh, mortgage rates and um, <laughs> stuff to do with housing, which is kind of wild. Um, so, you end up with this. I know as someone who used to sit down and stare across the table with employees, um, you, you have this really bizarre you know, conversation about CPI versus what is actually the real cost of living. And there are far better gauges to mm. uh, talk about what is the actual cost of living um, for people. Uh, because at times you, you can have a situation where the inflation rate might be quite low. Uh, and that has happened in Australia in the, in the, the, you know, the modern context. Um, but the argument often you'd be thrown back as, an, as a you know as a, as a unionist would be, so what? Um, CPI is just one gain gauge of it, and we've got inequality. But more the point, not concede and go on the fact that other things would go up like rents, hmm. mortgages, you know those things. Interest rates actually go up. So that I mean those are part of it. But I but I think in terms of like what causes inflation is. Um, something that I, I really, there's a Australian Institute paper. I'm sure we'll put a link to it uh, in, in the mm. um, in the notes. But they they were making the point that basically, in terms of increasing the, the increasing cost, um, companies or capitalists they, they've got the choice. They've got the choice to increase the cost of things uh, to maintain their profit rate or not. 
they've got it and they've also got a series of choices and i recommend it's not a very long document but it's, it's worth definitely worth a read which is making it clear that really like when when the cost of things increases companies do actually have choices available to them uh, they don't have to actually increase the cost uh to maintain that profit like they can actually you know suck up some of those costs or look for other areas and like i, I think that was another interesting part of that whole picture that you've also drawn there jacob uh yeah so i think um the, the trap that gets fallen into is that we, we talk about the rate of inflation as though it's this like cosmic force, you know, um, that is just something that it's sort of um, not for the likes of you and me to understand. Um, and it's just sort of, uh, it's something that comes out of, I don't know, some kind of like Lovecraftian like cave yeah. every, every like 25 years or something to um, like swipe a few people and um and like drag them under but and then you know if you set up right you might be lucky and get through it but you know it's sort of this boogeyman that can sort of be used as a cudgel to beat the working class into submission right i've the, and i've seen like lots of, lots of commentary from, yeah yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. um lots of lots of like um commentators um that we kind of like um i don't know people like um i think grace blakely has been talking about it um and also like mick lynch um and um, others in the UK at the moment uh, in the context of the, the big rail strikes and, and communication strikes and things that are happening at the moment. Um, talking about how, you know, it's actually, you know, it's actually pretty simple. Like um, things are going up, like the cost, the prices of things are going up. And when a price gets raised, that's a choice that's made by the person that owns it, the person who's selling it. Um, so even though we generally think about inflation in terms of like, uh, it's a general vibe that that like everything is going up and um, prices can go up for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's because of increased circ- like you know money circulation or it's um, like uh, shocks in supply and demand, which I would argue is actually the um, the real cause of this current um, inflationary period that we're in. Um, uh, or whether it's because of like a real sort of internal system-wide problem that is actually causing kind of um, uh, an inflationary cycle, which has been seen in, in history, but it's not really borne out in this data that the Australian the Australia Institute is talking about. Mm. Um, but whatever it is, it, it's something that's it's explainable. It's like a little bit complicated, but it's not um, something that the average person can't get their head around and actually have a, um, a political view about, you know? Uh, if we can take account of the, the current sort of, uh, reality that we're in, in terms of, yeah, there's geopolitics, there's industrial relations in local and international contexts, um, and there's other things like um, supply, um, supply, international supply chains and things. Then yeah, we can we can come up with a pretty solid um, understanding of um, what to do about inflation in this instance, right? Um, instead, what the sort of um, anti-labor um, anti-worker um, commentary have been doing is yeah running this hysterical line that uh, any um, across the board increases in wages is going to must necessarily result in a, a, a inflation death spiral um, that to and so the logic being that an increase in consumer demand of working people um, is going to then uh have a kind of um, textbook econ 101 effect on prices in your local grocery store or whatever or on, on well, fuel. they just they wheel out the Weimar Republic like that sure and, and, and including like you know um, people who should know better work for the financial review um, you know so, somehow that 
waging raising the minimum wage in Australia is going to you know lead to you know the Weimar Republic. I mean that's mm. the that's the kind of logic of the neoliberal um, ideologue is is this mm. sort of um, one of these laws, which is basically if you increase rate wages, inflation will rise and, and it'll be terrible and we'll end up in you know nineteen twenties um, um, messed up Germany. Um, it's just well, it's painfully ridiculous. Yeah. So this um, uh, Australia Institute research was really interesting, I thought, because what they did was they took uh, um, this methodology that was used by the European Central Bank, um, an economist there, to sort of look at the situation of inflation in Europe, which is, um, it's worth mentioning, quite a bit worse than it is in Australia because of their proximity to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Um, and they applied it to Australia. And what this methodology basically does um uh, my understanding is that it, it's an, a way to disaggregate um, the different causes of inflation. Um, so it looks at um, things like uh, supply chain, like sort of more macroeconomic, b- big picture stuff at a national and regional context, um, supply chain style stuff. It looks at um, uh, industrial relations and, and wage growth, and it's able to sort of um, create discrete um, measures of these things and the, the extent to which they are contributing to like head, headline inflation. Um, and what the ECB found in its own context and what Richard Dennis found in the Australian context is that um, wages are making up an absolutely negligible portion of the current inflation rate. Um, I think from memory, Richard Dennis was saying 0.6% um, of the overall inflation inflationary pressures coming from wage growth. Um you know, I also was hearing um, like Greg Jericho, um, economist at The Guardian and also the Centre for Future Work talking about this too, and basically saying that um, the point at which wages affect, affect inflation is the point at which wage increases exceed productivity growth, right? Um, but as I was saying before, we've seen decades of productivity growth uh both in terms of um, like the intensification of like labor labor heavy work, and also the introduction of new technologies, rationalization of certain industries, and I say rationalization uh, as a pejorative, just to be clear. Um, you know, thinking about like gig work and um, like food delivery, all that kind of thing. Um, like we've seen a massive increase in the uh, like outputs for inputs, basically, which is what we mean by productivity, um, and wages haven't gone up at all. So that would suggest that there's a huge um, a huge buffer of room to move for wages before uh, they start to catch up to all of these productivity gains that have been made. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and look, there was a, I thought it was a really stark graph, which um, you'll find in the Australian Institute piece, which is talking about uh, the falling nominal and real wage growth from March 2005 to March 2022. And there's this basically, there's two blue lines. And the blue line for real wage growth, um, which is an interesting one that they've used here, but it hovers from 2005 at around one and a half percent. You then have, it goes, it just completely drops. It's an interesting graph because if you think about which powers uh, political parties are in, in power in Australia, every time the coalition is in power, um, real wage growth just take plummets to. Um, you know, below 1% and then, you know, down to zeros. And, and currently we're in negative territory. Uh, in March 22, they're using this stat to sort of just like claim there's something like up to, we're in minus 3% of, uh, of actual um, uh, wage growth. So like right now, you know, pretty obvious we've got inflation going up, all the rest of it. Wages under a tremendous pressure. And we know that in terms of 
the cost of things getting more expensive it is is having that effect on on working people so uh and the poor so yeah it's it's really really stark stuff and it's ridiculous to to blame workers for mm. inflation and, yeah. and so can we try to yeah can we try to pass out the actual causes uh, of the inflation we're seeing in australia at the moment like um i guess i would um think it's caused by two sort of two things um mm. uh in a sort of slightly longer term um the covid crisis not only did that like like fundamentally shock the economy, um, global economy and the Australian economy um, and cause, uh, a, you know, there were a bunch of changes that were made um, to how we lived and um, how we worked. And now those things are filtering through um, in the form of um, uh, different distributions of demand, if you like. Um, and so that's going to cause um, fundamental changes in the sort of overall balance of supply and demand and, um, in this case, it looks like it, it's having a, um, a, an upward uh, force on prices for sure. But then there's the fact uh, more directly that the way that China has and continues to um, deal, deal, deal with their COVID outbreaks uh, differently to the way that we have sort of um, stopped doing um, lockdowns is that they, they've continued those lockdowns, right? Like China is still um, like shutting down cities, shutting down, um, you know. Uh, provinces. Yeah. yeah, whole provinces. <laughs> Um, and importantly, it, yeah, shutting down transport networks and um, manufacturing centers and things, right? Um, and you know, that's up to them. Like that's how they want to, how they want to deal with it. And uh, like we're having a spike. Uh, we, we've got the, like the biggest spike in COVID deaths I think happening at the moment um, because of our uh, approach. And like Australian governments are going to have to live with that. Um, in China, they're sticking really closely to the COVID zero approach. Um, but that means that. Uh, given that the Australian economy is so like closely linked to the Chinese economy and how dependent we are for um, like especially finished goods um, imported from China. um, Like we're very like subjected to those, um, those shocks in terms of supply. So that's the first element um, that is currently massively squeezing um, supply chains um, in Australia, which is going to have a naturally have an inflationary effect on prices. And then the second thing is the um, the conflict in Ukraine, right? So um, particularly, that's had uh, a big impact on. Um, uh, firstly, obviously, um, global oil prices, um, and like like any country, Australia is, um, you know, exposed to shifts in global markets for energy. Um, so oil and gas, um, unfortunately, um, we produce more than enough gas, um, to serve our, every, like our entire population. Um, and you know, all of it goes pretty much to refineries, I believe in, um, China and uh, gas refineries in, in Japan, China. So, um, because of deregulation and like, the, well, the lack of will to regulate the distribution of gas that is produced in Australia, our inability, also our inability to refine our own gas um, for consumption. Um, uh, we've got a situation where we produce more than enough energy and um, can't use it and don't distribute it amongst the population. And instead, the Australian population is subjected to uh, price shocks um, from the global market. Um so the other thing I suppose is um, grain prices. I'm not sure if this is as significantly affecting um, Australia, but I know for Europe especially, um, and that's not just um, sort of Central Europe, but uh, Western Europe and, and um, North America as well. Um, the conflict in Ukraine has significantly impacted global bread prices, grain, um, because Ukraine is a massive grower of grain. So is Russia. So um, 
um, not just the conflict itself, but sanctions are having a big impact. So um, given those things, I would say it is, you know, possible to pretty much entirely account for this current inflation rate through relatively short-term impacts on global supply chains and global markets, which means that there's a really serious risk that central banks um, overdo it when they use their big red button, the uh, interest rate button, to address inflation. Uh, that would mean basically um, hiking interest rates um, several times over, you know, uh, in, in like a short amount of time and could result in, yeah, basically a massive uh, slump in house prices. Honestly, not the worst thing. As I was saying before, like Australia's um, internal economy is really really built on this um, overinflated housing market, which has been boosted over and over again by appalling um, government policies, which have done nothing but um, further inflate house prices, and it wouldn't be a bad thing uh, for our, you know, our economy to correct in that sense. Um, but it's going to be bad for a lot of middle class people who um, have their, you know, all their eggs for retirement in the basket of their investment properties paying off. Um, that kind of thing. It could generally, like you know, uh, really negatively impact a big section of the middle and upper middle class in Australia. Yeah, look, the, the shelter thing is absolutely terrible and I think mm-hmm. we should continue to, to talk about it as access to shelter. Uh, that's, that's mm-hmm. It is interesting that the housing market's become such a barbecue conversation. What we really need to do in Australia is talk more and more about access to shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that neoliberalism in this country as it has in Canada, for example, uh, has meant that people's retirement, the quality of age, like their access to aged care, uh, their retirement access to aged care, the, whether or not they're actually able to also then remortgage their houses to help, um, you know, support their, their kids from actually buying and the, you know, over, overheated um, housing market. All these things, we've got so many things, all, so many um, levers that are um, tied into owning, owning property. Uh, not to also mention the fact that we have uh, a whole generation of of working people, you know, the middle income people, they've done their bit, you know, whatever, they're fine. They're, they're taking advantage of a, a tax arrangement we have in this country where um, a generation of people have, you know, often have owned one additional house, maybe two even, like, you know, own, own apartments. Other people try to get in on this game, this idea of negative gearing, as, as it's called, and um, getting tax um, credits for it and, and the like. Uh, it's just this intergenerational theft that keeps going on as well on top of that it's just, it is appalling mm. so in some I mean, there's ways, no point right. morally we, condemning we need the to... people that take advantage of it right yeah there's i no mean point. we're not moralizing yeah. about it. i mean look yeah. look if you if you had if you had the means and you're able to um access it to you know have a decent life you said well we'll fine i'm gonna you know line you up come the revolution no i mean it's not fine it? to do no i'm, I'm saying like uh, we yeah. shouldn't condemn people for taking advantage of it but yeah. somebody has got to have the political courage to That's right. put a stop to yeah. it yeah yeah because yeah. it's got um, it's just getting it's gotten nuts and i think i think yeah. you're right jacob that's this confluence of things is is really what's driving inflation in this country mm. and, the, and the consequences of the reserve bank just you know hitting the red button <laughs> repeatedly mm. while i think we'll talk about it a little later um ben elfman makes a good point uh in a recent article, article in, the, in the jacobin um about um you know the Parliamentary Labor Party, the PLP, does actually have other options. They don't don't have to just sit back and let the Reserve Bank hit the red button. You can actually do other mm. things, but we'll get more into that. So I guess, look, comprehensively, I think we've made that fairly clear that, that we're, the working class has bugger all 
to do, particularly um, with the decades now of large wage growth. Bugger all to do with uh, increasing inflation. Now, they're due to factors mm. well beyond um, working people's control. Um, states, nation states, and the owners of production and distribution of wealth are the ones that are um, behind all this. And I would add to that confluence just, just you know, standard greed. It's just greed and an ideology that um, that has been accepted for a long time and that this is just how you do business. And that's kind of how we're seeing the ideologues play out this kind of like absolutely crazy view of the world over the mm. UK, for example, with a leadership debate going on in the UK for the Conservative Party, for the Tory Party over there. We're both candidates. Like it's madness, the, the sort of things they're, they're talking about. Uh, it's complete dedication to, and the, the only thing they differ on is um, whether or not you need to um, carry out crazy austerity or whether or not you need to, um, carry out more massive tax cuts to corporations and the and the rich. That's that's the, that's their solution to a you know they've got the worst uh, inequality since the Napoleonic War. Uh, wages going nowhere. Oh, and, and the other corker is is over there. Reaction to workers fighting back and all power to the RMT over there is let's ban industrial action. Let's enable um, scabs to come in. Let's yeah, legalising scabbing, yeah. You know, th- th- this is the sort of nutbag stuff that neoliberalism, this is the the, the little, you know, rabbit warren they get themselves to you know, into. And so, yeah, don't accept it. Mm. No way. And and I guess, yeah. look, you know, all power the workers that are um, saying this is just, you know, absolute BS. Uh, people need to organise to uh, fight to ensure that they can keep their heads afloat and have... Um, afford to do things, but also um, there, there needs to be a reckoning. Working people should not have to con, you know, continue with this view of the way. We just have to keep copying below cost of living um, wage rises all the time. Yeah, Whether yeah. someone's on $22 an hour or someone's on 50 bucks an hour, you, you know, people need, that, need um, that income to be able to keep pace with how much things actually cost in this country while the big end of town is just having a laugh and they have been for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, as Mick Lynch was saying in Jacobin, actually, like um, the there is a sense, um, generally, like in the public, that like the um, this RMT strike is part of like a bigger, you know, um, fight back um, against austerity and neoliberalism. But he's actually saying that, well, that that's fine. Like we're happy to be very happy to be part of a, a larger movement, of course. But um, uh, at the end of the day this is a defensive strike um, like um, rights in ever since COVID. And you saw a similar thing happening with, with Qantas in Australia, but um, COVID has been used um, as a, a pretext by the uh, employers in the British um, railway system, uh, a pretext to basically undertake um, massive restructuring and cost cutting that they've been planning for 20 years. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's exactly the same as what happened with, um, with, with Qantas in Australia. Um, it's been part of Alan Joyce, their CEO's um, program at the company to slash costs, um, undermine organized work, their organized workforce, um, and ultimately fire and rehire the entire workforce um, on a um, you know casualized and um, disorganized basis. And that's what they're doing um, to the to the RMT workers, and that's why they're they're fighting back. So it's not just um, saying like um, okay we're making a, a renewed push, right, for a new deal for workers. Um, this is actually a, a defensive action. So um, it's not clear yet where, like, where things stand. Um, I was thinking to myself, like, um, 
COVID, we we talked about it on this show. Like um, there was a lot of hope that the COVID crisis initially was going to be this um, galvanizing force that would then you know um, reignite people's belief in the state uh, to sort of act in correcting inequality, um, but also it would kind of um, alter people's attitudes to their workplaces and to each other at work and enable a new wave of um, of collective action. And that didn't happen. You know, it felt like kind of disappointing. Um, but now it seems like maybe it's taken a bit um, of a bit of a sort of settling period along with the new crisis of this um, conflict in Ukraine um, for things to really come to a head, you know. Um, yeah. But having said that, yeah, it doesn't feel like um, a new... Uh, proactive kind of labor movement that hasn't been born out of these crises. Um, we're just seeing like the new, the newest like kind of flailing of a working class that's been just ground into the dirt for for forty years. Um, and I hope it builds and and it can build um, a lot of momentum and really make some big wins. I would say that uh, employers and governments will be looking on this kind of a timeline as well, though, um, and thinking we've got to crush absolutely every small thing that comes up because what we can't deal with is a, a reunified and um, re-energized labor movement you know yeah it is interesting um that example of the uk is inspiring but you're right jacob it is is a very defensive struggle that's going mm. on there and will have ramifications people look you know we do look at um what happens elsewhere because look they're all in class there's the same they go and do the same thing i know locally like we we had the, the fantastic kelly bowman on on our last uh, episode we're talking about the teacher strikes in new south wales which is fantastic part of the um, fight back by new south wales public sector workers uh to basically get wages that <laughs> that can keep up with the real cost of living they've been having effectively wage cuts now for going on years and years and years in new south wales um all, all power to them but like it's the exception to the rule it is i'm quite fascinated that it's taken this long um and you are right there was there was a little bit of hope that maybe there might be something that will kick off with with COVID uh, grounding down. But I think it's look in the past. I remember in the nineties we used to talk about the vacuum on the left. Um, I think the, the vacuum that we have in um, in struggle in Australia is that um, I think the people we need the subjective factor there is that we've got unions that are led by people that have given up on the idea of exercising industrial action as a meaningful strategy. They, they put all their eggs in the political strategy basket. And look, there's nothing wrong with intervening in politics. That's fine. It is fine. But if you're doing that so much and have been doing it for so long that you've actually given up on, on building workplace power, um, this is where we're at, where you've got the SDA crowing about um, the wage rise they got for... Um, uh, say Woolies Group, for example, which means that effectively those workers there are looking at their, their wage has gone up by around a dollar, dollar nineteen an hour. So, yeah, they're doing a dollar nineteen better than the minimum wage, and they are normally doing the bit. They're doing the best in retail, which is the thing that's quite sickening, right? Um, they're crying about that, and you've got <laughs> you're scratching the head as to what other unions are doing because um, all I hear is a. There's a bit of noise uh, having a go at the big end of town over CEO profits, absolutely, CEO pay rises and, and profits, and absolutely, that's absolutely true. And it's good to see um, the ACTU leadership saying the right things recently about that. Uh, but what's what we're not 
what we're not hearing is any calls for radically changing the anti-union laws or uh, taxing the rich, even as a political thing. But I think more the point, like, or, or even actually saying, look, stuff that we're going to um, organise uh, industrial campaigns and, you know, these laws are broken and we're going to break them. There seems to be a lot of hope being placed on this big meeting that's happening in September, which mm. call me a cynic, but I, and along with a lot of people my vintage, remember very well what happened in 2007 when we had the Rights at Work campaign that was packed up very neatly after we won government. Uh, she'll be right, and they gave us this rotten Fair Work Act, which was, look, the Libs couldn't even bullet the Libs didn't even need to change the Fair Work Act when they got in in 13. It's that rotten, uh, our anti-union laws. Union laws, those that the Fair Work Act was meant to be the fix from uh, that Brad Gillard government, and it's been a disaster. Um, people, those people need to, you know, call it out and do something. That's that's what's we've got a vacuum there of leadership in the, in the union bureaucracy, and um, the only way to change that was, you know, all power to members of unions out there and join one if you're not. Make your noise and pressure your union leaders to do something. And that's exactly what has happened in New South Wales because of, you know, particularly things like COVID and all the rest of it. The public sectors in uh, you, members have said, you guys actually have to pull your finger out. And that's that's what's happening in New, with New South Wales public sector workers. That's my take on what's going on at the moment. It's, on the one hand, there's some inspiration. On the other hand, it's just really, really depressing and ang- angry causing, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So shall we have a quick read of uh, this Ben Eltham piece, um, looking at all this stuff uh, in, yes, in Jackson, yeah. and then um, we'll have a bit of a reflect on it. I'll, I'll try and sort of cut out extraneous stuff, um, but uh, let's see how we go. So... Uh, this is Ben Eltham um, in, in Jacobin. Um, its title is uh, To Solve Australia's Cost of Living Crisis, Labor Should Tax Super Profits, uh, which I believe they have uh, repeatedly ruled out this week. Um, uh, and uh, Joseph Stiglitz has been doing a, a tour, a speaking tour in Australia, calling for the same thing. Um, and it would be a good thing to see um, some, some mounting pressure uh, from the unions and from, you know, the rest of the sort of progressive civil society to get this happening because there's absolutely no reason for our energy prices to be taking massive windfall profits um, because of, essentially because of the the war in Ukraine, um, cranking out higher energy prices. They haven't done anything to deserve extra profits. Um, Like those profits need to be redistributed back to um, either redistributed back through the through the welfare system or um, not allowed through price uh, capping. That would be another way to address it. Anyway, um, so Treasurer Jill, this is uh, Ben Eltham. Um, Treasurer Jim Chalmers gave a speech earlier this week on the state of the economy. Spoiler alert, it's bad. Inflation is spiking, real wages are falling, and economic growth is slowing. The economic picture I've set out today represents a convergence of challenges, the kind of which comes around once in a generation, he told Parliament. Uh, Chalmers blamed international factors and the former coalition government. He told Australian voters that he feels their pain. While the prescription was grim, Chalmers had less to say about what he planned in the way of treatment. Can I just say, by the way, this um, whole uh, thing of um, like, we feel your pain, we, we recognise how hard it is, it's, oh, people are doing it tough. That's what they love to say. We know people are doing it tough. Um, it's one of the like most disgusting aspects of modern political discourse to me. Um, it's, I think it's, it's really <laughs> so bad. Ingenuous. It's it's terrible. Yeah. It's bullshit. Okay. Uh, so uh, missing from his speech was any firm outline of a path toward lower inflation and higher wages. Wait, Labor will hold an economic summit later this year, which you mentioned, Ben, 
Uh, Chalmers will also deliver a budget in October, but beyond some tinkering with the childcare subsidies and some vague promises for more renewable energy, there was little in detail in his speech. The bad news for the on the economy highlights the nasty spot the new Labor government finds itself in. In the short term, Labor is in charge of an overheating economy with real wages sliding back backwards. The problem, as with much of the rest of the world, is inflation. War in Europe and the pandemic in China have combined to produce nasty shocks in international supply chains. Food and energy prices are a particular pain point. But while the inflation problem is not of the government's making, the problem of what to do about it certainly falls to it. Unfortunately, Labor has few good options. Chalmers could let the inflation run, but this will hurt Labor's base of low and middle income wage earners who are already struggling with rising prices and falling real wages. The Reserve Bank of Australia has the blunt force instrument of raising interest rates, which it is using, but the RBA is playing catch-up. It was dovish on prices as inflation presses mounted over the summer and now is hiking rates in quick intervals. Stiff interest rate rises in coming months will obviously crimp consumer demand, but in doing so, they will also inflict significant pain on a core Australian political constituency, those who hold mortgages. Fiscal policy is the other big lever in macroeconomic policy. As economist Stephen Hamilton uh, points out, the Commonwealth spends about one in every four dollars in the domestic economy. If he was brave enough, Chalmers could sharply cut government spending. A large and rapid contraction in federal spending would quickly flow through to the rest of the economy, throttling demand and cooling some of the more overheated sectors. But voters hate austerity, and Labor has promised to protect social spending programs like Medicare and the NDIS. The government also has committed to continuing the ambitious arms buildup embarked upon by the coalition. Hooray. Uh, to its great shame. Another way to take heat out of the economy is with tax hikes. Raising taxation would confiscate windfall profits from companies and shareholders that are doing very well out of the current price rises, especially in highly concentrated sectors like mining, energy, housing, banking, and retail. Middle and high income taxpayers are also about to get a big tax cut, promised by Josh Frydenberg before the election due to start rolling out in the coming weeks. Labor could cancel it. Tax hikes on corporations and the very rich would raise some very useful revenue and take some heat out of the economy. But taxing corporates is politically risky, as Labor well remembers from its ill-fated attempt at a super profits tax in 2010. Taking promised tax cuts off the, off middle Australia, especially at a time of rising living costs, is even more politically dangerous. Okay, so maybe we'll stop there. Uh, so what do you think about how he's laid that out, Ben? Yeah, look, I mean, what I like about Eltham's piece is he really quite... Um, yeah, he very clearly runs through the options, and and he's right. The, there's a lot of hard choices for the parliamentary Labor Party, uh, but I, but I think the key thing, not that I disagree at all, or whatever. I think what's what's interesting is that there are some things that the parliamentary Labor Party look like they've they're considering others, which they just don't even you know want to want to think about or even acknowledge. Um, it is interesting that. The stuff about the the super profits taxes and the like, like that's the obvious, and I, and I think it is it is one of the conclusions Elfa makes in his piece is is look you're going to have to increasing taxes on the corporations and the rich and even price um, uh, setting prices on things are, are real options and it has been done in the past or whatever and, and look it's going to upset some you know fairly well off people. But too bad. No, that's that's the really the 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 option that they should be taking. Mm. Uh, whether or not 
that is going to happen is completely dependent on a subjective factor, which is how much pressure can be applied for that to happen, uh, whether it's through workers taking industrial action and, and struggle and protest and the like, uh, through rights groups or, or, or the like, are um, other factors there. So, um, yeah, look, uh, yeah, unfortunately, though, I, I can't see them doing what we'd like to see. Uh, without a big push, and that is that is really disappointing. Um, yeah, people talk aggravated. about this in terms of like um, the uh, they talk about it as it being this um, problem of um, ideology in the Labor Party, which I think mm. is maybe a slightly wrong way to look at it. And there, mm. sure, don't get me wrong, there are people, including Jim Jarmers, who subscribe to some of the dogmas of, of neoliberalism um, for sure. But I think um, what's overlooked a bit is um, the sort of the rightly or wrongly the the political pragmatics um of the yeah. way that people in the party think um like they are there are there are a lot of people in the party who are i think genuinely like um still sort of terrorized by the prospect of um like a murdoch um scare campaign at the next election and that's a that's probably going to just going to be a perennial fear that that actually induces action yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah and then yeah. prevents it as well um, yeah. yeah, things like that. Um, and then, yeah, you saw like, I, I remember, um, you know, the, the negative gearing campaign in the 2019 election, um, which saw Bill Shorten lose um, and the, um, you know, the, the conclusion that was drawn in the party was that that was a, a losing policy and that we lost too, you know, the party lost too many um, of its sort of, its um, s- small time aspirational landlord um, constituency, um, and that that couldn't be negative gearing just couldn't be touched. Um, same with um, the capital gains tax discount. Um, reforming those two policies, I mean the fucking the the capital gains tax discount discount would be that would be a really meaningful way to address inflation, yeah. right? Um, another thing, maybe um, our um, for profit um, welfare discipline system. Uh, currently puts seven billion dollars into the private sector every year, something like that, six or seven billion dollars. That's what we pay to the for-profit job agencies. Um, so that could be prevented by uh, re-establishing the CES, massively cutting that spending, and then having a centralised employment office um, that actually analyses the uh, job market and distributes uh, training and uh, interviews and uh, whatever and education appropriately. Um, and I know that that is a priority for the Albanese government because in the first week of this parliament, they've established Jobs and Skills Australia, right? And um, when I first saw <laughs> when I first saw the headline that they had done this, I thought, "Holy shit, have they?" Your beauty is happening, man. The revolution's they've gone come. and bloody done it. <laughs> they've esta- re-established the CES. No, yeah. unfortunately, no. no. So what it is is basically, I think, uh, an in-house think tank um, that's done that exists to do labour market testing and um, uh, analyze. Um, the, the needs of the, of the labor market, basically, um, and advise the Minister of Employment and Training, which is fine. I mean, I, I suppose that's fine. It's, it's, I think it's a really good thing that that won't be being done by the fucking big four consultancy firms, which I'm assuming is how it was being done before. Um, that's a, it's always a good thing to be insourcing that stuff. But um, that could be part of a, a larger agency that is doing the actual practical work of education and training rather than and, and placements and, and, and distributing labor to where it's needed um, it's, uh, it's, as opposed to this ridiculous for-profit yeah. system that is like just unbelievably cruel uh, and wasteful, you know? It's, um, it is, yeah, you, look, you're dead right 
on that, Jay. It is interesting that the people in the Parliamentary Labor Party, particularly in the, the more conservative end of the party, so the right faction types, it's like they've never gotten over drinking the Kool-Aid from the 90s about Keating. And then then later on, they, they just kept on this sort of weird fantasy land stuff of what Blair did in the UK, where they had this inflated view of the power of, of Murdoch. They're so, they're so worried about upsetting a aging geriatric megalomaniac um, rather than actually upsetting the people that are going to back them in to secure their jobs right mm. so if, if you're a, if you're a parliamentarian and you want that job and you want to get elected you should really be more concerned about the people in your community they're going to vote you up as opposed to what a legacy media is you know Saying nasty things about you or the or the or the, um, or the party you with, like it's that stuff that I find quite mystifying in twenty twenty. Well, it's only the headline in the fucking Sunday Telegraph is only scary if you believe that you can't or won't reach your voting base as yeah. effectively as that newspaper will. Yeah. Right, that's the problem. The yellow press is always going to be there. It's always going to run against um, the people who stand up for. Uh, a fairer society that's fucking that's the reality yeah and like if you want it badly enough you've got to counter them you've we, we, we've got to have like a a popular well-distributed uh you know progressive media otherwise like and it's you know it's got to be arranged by it's got to be a political project it's not just going to be like a for-profit thing um it's because it's fundamentally it's anathema to um the the success of big media capital you know yeah so yeah. And that's why you should become a supporter of Doll Capital at patreon.com forward slash D-O-H-K-A-P-I-T-A-L. Um, but yeah, that, that is that is part of the, mm. the solution there. And I guess that's the exciting bit now is that we are in a time where people are not, um, not necessarily, they're not taking their information just from those. Well, in fact, I mean, in Australia, it's very stark. What is it? It's 80 or 85% of our um, newspapers are owned by news limited but then you've got yeah. you know it's the the domination of like it's stokes murdoch they dominate legacy media and then you've had until recently the um the state um organ the abc taking its um editorial questioning lines from those organs is is been quite amazing but it's got less and less you know meaningful in in recent years so i i think yeah i like you're saying, an independent media or more is a point putting out your own voices. So, you know, the sources, I, it is fantastic that sources are like the, the New Daily, which is, I mean, it's funded by the industry super, um, the super, industry yeah. superannuation groups, which are, yeah. I mean, that's great. But it also it reminds me, it was a separate topic, but um, it reminds me of like, look, you know, the party, the Labor, we should have bought the Canberra Times when I was on its knees. I mean, you know, we should have done it. I think we're going back to, I mean, we can do another chat about the situation of media, but you know, in Australia, but we are getting um, the the crisis in regional um, media and all the rest of it. Um, there are opportunities to to actually you know change media and and, and do that. And I guess you know we we're interested in that. Um, I wanted to then also like maybe we flip over to like um, the risk for labour is that they're not going to go. It's always this balancing act they try to do. On the one hand, not wanting to upset the base so much, but on the other hand, this idea of running the national the national interest, as the old quote yeah. used to be. Um, the the risk 
that's part of their fear is, is, is you know, they want to run the best interest, the, the national interest. So they believe in a lot of this, you know, stuff, always have, even before we had neoliberalism uh, versus workers. So I guess with that, um, the flip side to that is that you have a government that basically becomes perceived as not actually having changed anything. And that's that's really, I think, that things, there was a lot of goodwill in 2007 and very quickly it was very clear that not much changed really. Like there were moves for here and there on stuff. And I, I think that's the greatest fear I've got is that we're going to get a, I don't want to see a repeat of the Howard Gillard years where things actually went backwards because I'm more interested mm. in sucking up the big business. Um, but I think there's that opportunity now to actually try to drive things. And I think, look, the Elfin piece and Jack and the people should check it out. I think it's really good. Um, and with that in mind, look, big hello to, look, the Greens put their tanks on the Labor's lawn during last election and they're, they're still doing it right now around talking about taxing the rich and corporations and fair play to them. Like, it's just sensible. Uh, <laughs> we, yeah. Things are expensive. We, we need more revenue. Do it. If we're going to afford um, services and the like, that's it. On the last one, uh, the ABS stats. The census recently points out that finally the boomers aren't the biggest cohort of voters. Hooray. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, but but I mean, like anyone, I don't think we should just be waiting waiting for a whole lot of people to you know literally go to the pearly gates before we have. Any, well, it's not going to matter. I mean, somebody's going to inherit all their property, right? Like, yeah, yeah, well, like, that'd be great. When <laughs> we often when we when we talk about the yeah. baby boomers as a like a voter base, right? Like, yeah, um, we are really personifying a certain um, like historical accumulation of capital, mm. right? And that is in particularly. In the uh, in property in house in residential housing, um, and so yeah, obviously like my my um, grandparents are boomers; they're dirt poor, you know. Um, like it's not like a, there's not some like boomer mindset that is like inherently um, fucking conservative. They they yeah. fucking they did 1968 for God's sake, you know. Yeah. Um, yes. So. Uh, like yeah, but that that and that means that that um, concentration of capital and the political um, dispositions that it fosters in people uh, is completely transferable, and it will be transferred to a new generation of um, of people, um, you know, who are sort of uh, middle aged um, in, in over the course of the next um, twenty years. You know, yeah, it's not going to um, fix the problem. It's not going. Yeah, it's not going to yeah. go away. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's a it's a it's a mistake of of just um, political analysis to think that um, generations themselves have like uh, really important um, fundamental political dispositions. Um, yeah. Like maybe yeah maybe you can think about like cultural social mores in those terms, but I don't think so in terms of like um, the big political issues of the day. Like mm-hmm. um, that's different, um, especially when it comes to distribution of power between labor and capital. Yeah, uh, that'll always be determined by by interests. We live in a society where everybody uh, is basically grown up indoctrinated into um, a kind of like individualist consumerist mindset, um, and so that's that's why I say we don't need. There's no point like condemning people that take advantage of negative gearing or whatever. Like everyone's got no choice but to look out for themselves and fend for themselves, right? Mm. Um, and the only way to combat it is through uh, yeah through struggle through collective self-defense, right? That's first and foremost. And you can, what you find is that even people who have said things like, oh, I'd never be in a union, like I don't see the point, or like um, if you aren't taking taking advantage of negative gearing and capital gains tax discounts, then like that's your problem. You're an idiot for not, not getting rich off it, you know, whatever. 
Um, when the crisis comes and those people find themselves exposed to the forces of the market and then find that people show them solidarity, um, that change, that's what changes minds, you know, like that's, mm. that's what builds, uh, builds the movement. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. This week with a, so we've just had the first week of parliament, uh, it's finally sat and it is shaping up to be a very interesting time because we do have this cost of living, um, crisis going on. Uh, we're not, not in the sort of straits of say UK. I was, I was watching rather disturbing, um, footage of, uh, you know those security tags that security tags on cheese in the UK. Oh, of, yeah. Well, just just stuff you just you just shaking your head and scratching your head, but literally the baby formula. Point. But I mean, I was watching this thing. This guy, oh, politics Joe's his name anyway. Does this sort of left wing um, stuff on YouTube? Okay, cool. He, but what was interesting is talking to a local Labor member who you know is, is um uh, left left Labor. He's up around Liverpool. And so they convinced the local supermarket chain that look, we they won't go. They basically, if people were stealing um, essentials, uh, look, you know, we're not going to charge you. We, we'll just, you know, let you can take it and turn a blind eye. And look, I know. Oh actually, well, it was then they they don't they don't they don't let you take it. They refer you to a yeah, food bank. A food bank, yeah, yeah refer to your yeah. food bank. And you're like, oh yeah, okay. But the whole thing about it, like on the one hand, is like, okay, well that's nice. But I mean, the key point I think Joe was making then. And the thing that disturbs me, what we have in, in this country, is this, um, it just seems to be there's not enough people talking about, when they say, oh, people are doing it tough, they don't, they don't really understand what that means. It's it's people mm. who are literally stealing baby formula, not to go and sell it on eBay back to China, <laughs> which was a thing at one point, strangely enough in this country, but it's, you know, it's just to get to the essentials to, to look after yep. their family. It's it's yep. then it's happening more and more. We've got, but the thing that gets me about this situation is I think we need the the federal parliament to do more. Whether it's taxing the rich to get the revenue, uh, it's changing legislation around industrial relations laws. And um, look, while it's a good start, look, it's a what is it a floor, not a ceiling? The forty three percent. Yeah, yeah. Fine. Like, but my my main wish, you know, the two cents there is, is I just hope that both the Greens and the uh, the PLP uh, are sensible about this and, and work out what is actually a reasonable deal as opposed to playing a zero sum game with each other. And I think that is the aspiration of the majority of the electorate is they want people to get something meaningful in the end. Mm. But um, yeah, there's that. Now, the last thing I was going to say, though, I mean, just reminding me of another side issue. Like, it is a perverse thing that we've got in Australia where, well, you know, there are some people really, really excited and happy about the idea that we have full employment. Um, well, I know Josh Frydenberg was very excited about the fact that we had, you know, really lo the lowest unemployment since whenever. But we have this crazy inequality going on. And what we have is a... In it, yeah, people might have jobs, but then whether or not they've got enough to live on and all the rest of it is the other issue. Um, <laughs> let alone the idea of like you know what work will set us free. Like you know we have that contradiction of people working crazy hours, their kids yeah. being raised by people and who are paid appallingly, um, and then you've got other people who just can't get enough hours to to live properly and go in the food banks and whatever else. Like yeah, yay, full employment, isn't that wonderful? Um, you know, sorry if I'm well, excited about it, but yeah, 
And, just because and, uh, yeah. full employment doesn't doesn't full employment does not cause high wages, like that's obvious, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. A, pre, it's a precondition for a strong bargaining yeah. position for labor against capital. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, you're right. Like um, underemployment is the real issue, right? So the headline employment figure doesn't really take in, like doesn't 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 show how many people are having to work two or three different jobs just to make ends meet. Mm. Um, and how many people have, um, cause I, I think to qualify as, as employed, you only need to get like one hour a week a fortnight or something, right? Yeah. That's right. So it doesn't account for all the people who are, get, who don't have enough work, let alone people who are working multiple jobs. Yeah. It was a, um, an economist mate said to me years ago, and I know this hasn't changed. It's payment in kind is still a thing that turns up when you're filling your mm. new start. Oh yeah. Um, that could be someone in, giving you a, business, a case of beer, especially. like if yeah. you were stupid enough to declare it, but like, yeah, it's. It's the the stats are, are well and truly, um, you know, yep. stupid. But I mean, look, that full employment thing then goes back to like the, the this weird contradiction. Uh, what we need to see from the the broader labour movement and and um, I guess activists is to uh, increase the pressure uh, and the expectations mm. that the government needs to do something. And it's not just like we're not accepting this idea. Oh well, things are tough, which we've heard about. You know, um, not committing to raise the new start allowance while like people trying to live on forty dollars a day in Australia is like next to impossible. Yeah. Um, you know, the pressure needs to be kept on, and I think activists need to continue to do that inside Labor and outside, and, and all power to them. Um, but you know, do it in a way without sort of um, pretending that the PLP is the local people down the street who actually support you, who might actually be in the Labor Party. You know what I mean? Like. There's some mm. silly stuff that um, gets said out there in the stratosphere. I think I've got to wrap up. I've got to head off, actually, in a no, second. So yeah, let's yeah. wrap up. Thanks for listening to Doll Capital. That's all we've got for you this uh, this episode. Um, don't forget that uh, you can find us on Twitter. We're uh, at Doll Capital on Twitter. Uh, and we are on Facebook. I think it's just Doll Capital. You can probably search it up on Facebook. I'm not sure what the URL is. And we're on Patreon. Um, head to our Patreon page if you want to support the show. Um, so we can have lots more good guests. Um, and uh, if we can buy a new uh, audio interface with an extra input, at the moment we've only got one with two inputs, which means that when we have a guest on the show, there's some microphone sharing happening. And it's it's very you know awkward and, and doesn't sound as good. And um, we're always bumping the microphones. And so you can help us buy a, a new interface that is going to have three or four inputs, and then we'll really get this show on the road. Uh, or, you know, Whatever. Um, if you can't um, afford to pay us five bucks a month or whatever the Patreon subscription is, you can always like and rate the show on your podcast platform of choice. That's really helpful. Uh, and make sure you're subscribing uh, wherever you're listening so that you get our new episodes uh, when they come out. Uh, but uh, with that, I think that's all we got for you. So yeah, we're done. Covered. We've covered a lot. See you. Uh, see you next episode. Yeah. We'll speak to you soon. Bye.